welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Jefferson Cowley, the James G. Stallman Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. His book, The Great Exception, The New Deal, and the Limits of American Politics, published by Princeton University Press, is a topic of this show. Cowley interprets the New Deal as a massive but unstable experiment from the main of American political culture. Against arguments that the New Deal was the product of American penchant for reform, Cowley asserts that it was a remarkable historical detour. The Great Depression and World War II were specific historical circumstances that wrought a short-lived effort for government intervention in securing collective economic rights. Unions flourished, industrial workers gained job security and good wages, and the country enjoyed a relative amount of political cohesion. Multiple legislative measures and the growth of unions offered a countervailing power against corporate wealth accumulation and promised a bright economic future. Several enduring fissures in political culture would all but undo the New Deal after the 1970s. The long tensions over immigration, religious and racial hostilities, the frailty of unions, and the ideology of Jeffersonian individualism remained and assured that new interventionist role for the state would not last. By examining the birth of the New Deal and its decline, Cowie locates a legacy of individual rights that stood against its long-term viability. As the central government has continued to expand under free market ideology, collective initiatives are being led at the local and state level by cross-class neo-progressivism, organizing labor and advocating for immigrants and other minorities. While the New Deal gave way to free market ideology, the future might lie in a new imaginary rising from below. Here is my conversation with Jefferson Cowie. Now let me introduce you to the author, Jefferson Cowie. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book gives us a sobering picture of the New Deal by locating its internal weaknesses and showing how why American political culture was too much for it to overcome. But before we get into this and other issues, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write The Great Exception. Well, I, uh, I was sort of raised in a blue-collar household. Uh, my father was a custodian. And I kind of, as I, I grew up, uh, not by any means poor, but certainly poor on the uh, blue-collar side of town. And uh, I, I became aware early on about what uh, John, Richard Sennett and Jonathan Cobbs called the hidden injuries of class, um, just sort of the small ways that economic differences uh, presented themselves and how they were internalized by people. And... Uh, I, I always sort of felt that, and then when I got into grad school, I began to develop a language for that, and I got involved in sort of labor and working class politics, and uh, wrote my first book on a factory that relocated from the north to the south into Mexico called Capital Moves, and, and then a big book after that called Staying Alive on the 1970s. And this book um, was a very interesting product of teaching and research. We often say that they go hand in hand, but this really was. This actually came directly out of my lectures where I began to try and figure out the rise and fall of the New Deal within uh, uh, a month 
uh, of each other when I was trying to think about how to, how to frame lectures. And I just began to realize, oh, the things that went into creating it also went into allowing it to fall apart. And that's when I began to put it together. And uh, it also came out of rich discussions with my colleague, Nick Calatore, um, who was beginning to have some of the same questions and issues. And we began, we wrote an article some years ago called The Long Exception that got a lot of uh, play. And, uh, and then I decided to make it into a book. Now, there's been debates about the New Deal among historians, and what has how, what are those debates, and where where is your argument falling among those debates? Yes, there has been a lot of debates about the New Deal. Um, I'm I'm fighting mostly with uh, well, pretty much the entire political spectrum. I mean, conservatives, which are uh, there's been a sort of conservative critique of the New Deal that basically says that the New Deal was a state intervention that bungled a bad, uh, you know, a rough economy and made it much, much worse. I, I actually don't believe that. There's a, a sort of a classic liberal interpretation that says that the New Deal is sort of a modernization project that is part of a long ascendancy of, of a reform tradition that culminates in the modern welfare state. I'm um, arguing with those guys. And then there's kind of a new left interpretation that basically says the New Deal was very conservative and prevented a much more dangerous or radical uh, transformation of society when the time was right. It, uh, it basically gave piecemeal reforms when, the, when there's a possibility of wholesale transformation. And I'm trying to steer my way through all three of these arguments and come up with something quite new, I think. No, what you're what you're you're arguing that the New Deal was actually an exception or a detour from American political culture from the past. But it it wasn't a progression. It wasn't just the, the finishing up of the progressive reforms that started back in the 19th century, but was actually a detour that was brought about by very specific historical circumstances. So. What is what is the what was the deviation from the past? Well, I essentially think that um, you know I, I don't want to deny that there were important building blocks in the Gilded Age and the labor of evils, especially the Gilded Age, and many of the reforms of the Progressive Era laid important groundwork for the New Deal. But a lot of people basically think the Progressive Era is just a dress rehearsal for the final triumph of the New Deal. But I think that without certain circumstances, uh, you're left without the major uh, welfare state type reforms of the New Deal. And I look at a variety of, of, of variables that came together in the 1930s, more than just the economic crash, and to try and figure out why, for the first time, really in American history, working people actually got economic leverage and power and mechanisms for redistribution that they had never had before on a large scale and actually haven't had since its collapse in the 1970s. And to do that, I think you have to look at how political culture was working at the time. Let's go back. Let's go back to the 19th century. Um, What was the, what was the position of, because your book deals mostly with labor and labor, the labor issue that was, that was part of the new deal. What was the position of labor in the 19th century uh, in American was, culture, uh, political? What was their political position? 
Right. Well, but, you know, it was fragmented, and that's part of my argument is that um, la- you know the labor question or labor's position, as it was often called, um, it was it was divided between the you know the skilled workers wanted uh, collective bargaining for themselves and basically nobody else. Uh, the unskilled workers were mostly left out. Uh, there were more inclusive groups like the Knights of Labor, but they had sort of a fuzzy agenda. There were the socialists who believed in large industrial unions, but they kept getting beat by the, the militia and the courts. So it was a combination of a kind of fragmented identity for labor and a very oppressive political climate for their interests. Now, the... Labor was divided among all kinds of factions, like you, you've named some of them already, but there was also the religious issue, Catholic, non-Catholic, there was immigration issues, right. there was yeah. all kinds of agricultural workers, and the working class was not a unified body of people, and they all, they were different, there were differences that were competing for attention. Now, what the Gilded Age, you talk about the, the, when it goes into the progressive era, you talk about some of the progressive reforms uh, and its relationship to labor. I think you, you mentioned corporate paternalism, welfare capitalism. What did that do for labor, and why was that not sufficient? Right. Well, um, yeah, so you have – you're exactly right. There's this, to go back to the Gilded Age, your description is perfect. There's this sort of stew of competing interests and antagonisms on ethnicity, on race, culture – Immigrant status, you know, we talk about the culture wars in the 70s and 80s, but really there's, there's a, a massive culture wars going on, uh, in the late 19th century. And the progressive era, it, it continues. I mean, we tend to think of the major reforms of the progressive era, you know, maybe the creation of the Federal Reserve or something like that. But so much of it was a very kind of top-down paternalistic attempt to reform to culturally uplift and reform, uh, especially immigrants. And there was there were beginning to be inroads among uh, uh, the state and labor, especially during World War One, where, where government basically provides certain rights to, for labor to organize, but then takes them away in the big strike wave of 1919. So it's kind of like a little blip of success for labor. And then after the rest of 1919, Corporations began to become more enlightened and talk about uh, having uh, welfare capitalism, i.e. the corporation itself can take care of the labor question. And I think, you know, David Brody, a famous laborist, had, had a, uh, a little throwaway line in one of his essays where he said, you know, if it weren't for the Great Depression, probably welfare capitalism would have continued indefinitely. And that stuck in my mind. It's just sort of hooked in my mind. I'm like, Really? And, and then if you think about it, we're back to this sort of quasi-welfare capitalism under some circumstances. And, and, but, but you have this break where there was actually a vibrant redistributive welfare state from the 30s to the 70s. Well, what, what, so, so there's a lot going on, but nothing. So there's not a solution, really. One of the things that you talk about is uh, part of the problem with the, the labor had, uh, that was part of the whole political culture, was this uh, Jeffersonian individualism, this belief and the whole concept of free labor that came from the 19th century and that that really kept 
labor from unifying. Yeah, now that's bit, that, Can you talk about that yeah, a little bit? Yeah, sure. That is, the, I think, the, in some ways, the deepest, most elusive, most plastic dimension of, of the book. It's hard, you know, individualism is so important, yet it's so hard to pinpoint. You know, Tocqueville talked about the fact that there was this anti-centralizing force in, in American life. And, and that, I think that's really the case from the beginning. There's a fear of the state, um, especially uh, among uh, native-born peoples. And this makes it very difficult for people to... to the, the protest movement, the sense of dissent is often uh, triggered against the state rather than trying to control the state, take over the state. Um, you know, and that, that was Debs's, Eugene Victor Debs's great insight. He said, wait a minute, if we're going to restore, you know, uh, uh, try and save Republican institutions, we're going to have to actually take over the state. And, um, and that was very different than most people who said, oh, Republican values can only be preserved by limiting the state. And if you're limiting the state, then you don't have much traction for national reform. So basically, labor was caught between uh, uh, corporations, capitalism, industrial capitalism is very aggressive, uh, that wasn't going to protect their interest, and their unwillingness to use the state or to appeal to the state to protect their interests. That's exactly right. Well put. So they were sort of out, they were out on their own. Yeah, they're on their own, and then they're also, but they're also fragmented. They're on their own in their own sort of isolated communities, at least in the 19th century, um, because you know they're they're either in their ethnic enclave or their or their skilled uh, uh, brotherhood or whatever the case may be, and and they have there's a very blinkered uh, sense of solidarity. And you could also argue, of course, that corporate paternalism or welfare capitalism was a defensive move by by corporations from what they saw was happening with labor. They were like, okay, we better Absolutely. we better protect ourselves by giving them something. Give them something so we don't have to give them too much. Right. Well, and more so, so that the state doesn't do it. Right. You know, okay. we want to be in control of what it is. We don't want the government doing this either, right? We want to be in control of it. And, the, and some of the drift of the progressive era was was the beginning of state intervention, especially during the war. And they made it in, in welfare capitalism, which was actually fairly limited, let's recall. It was still an argument against the government or unions running this. Okay, now, all of a sudden you have, uh, it goes through the 1920s, then you have the Great Depression. What, what, what did the Great Depression, what was the pressure that the Great Depression brought upon government intervention? I can see, well, you know, Hoover. You know, Hoover was. You could have continued. We could continue with Hoover's policies of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So, what well, was the pressure? I think, I think Hoover did a lot. Actually, I, I, I'm kind of stopped on Hoover. Um, I, I know he's sort of the whipping boy for for a lot of depression uh, scholars, but um, you know, he broke a lot of precedent given the degree of anti-statism. Uh, that he inherited, and he had a very progressive spirit. You know, he was very much a voluntarist kind of guy who wanted to get things done. It was just the crash was so much bigger than anything that his ideas could have handled, and we really did need some countervailing power from the state at that moment. But he did try to do things. 
But if you think about it, when Roosevelt gets elected, we're three and a half, well, Roosevelt takes office, we're three and a half years into the crisis, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and very little is being done. So Roosevelt comes in at a very unique political moment when people are desperate, and he, he has a congressional landslide on his coattails, and he, he basically has a Congress that is willing to do anything at that moment. Which contrasts, for instance, after 2008, where Obama had a splendid majority that lasted about 10 months and then, and then lost it, right? So, so there's a very, very different scenario in those two crises, just as a sort of, uh, you know, counterexample. So when, when Roosevelt entered, uh, office, did he come in with a strong vision or was something that he came to as he, as the depression deepened and he was, in office longer, did he finally go, oh, we've got to do something? Or did he come into it already with a vision of, uh, of, of something different for the country? Roosevelt came into office with a sunny disposition and a willingness to experiment. Other than that, he had no idea what he was doing. And I actually, I do think actually a willingness to experiment and a sunny disposition are important. And so... The other thing that happened that makes this sort of extraordinary is not only does he come in three and a half years into the crisis, but then the so-called first New Deal, in which they mostly turn uh, industrial regulation over to business itself through the industri- uh, National Industrial Recovery Act, doesn't work. It's a, it's a failure. It's a failure uh, to achieve its goal, and it's, a, and it's a failure in the eyes of the Supreme Court. So... He gets not only all that time, uh, all that wind at his back, he's allowed to completely fail the first time out and get a second run at it, what we often call the second New Deal, which is the most famous policy, Social Security Act, Fair Labor Standards Act, and the National Labor Relations Act between 35 and 38. So it's, it's really quite an amazing little gauntlet of, of circumstances that Roosevelt navigate in order to get this, the famous deal. So how, did, how successful was he? Obviously, he was very successful, but how did he manage to consolidate the multiple uh, or bring all these different interests together, corporations, labor, the left, middle class, the progressives, all these people uh, who previously were sort of standing against each other? How does he get all these people to to buy his program? Or does he? Right, well, now that's the ticket. See, now that's the question. And I don't think here we have Roosevelt's genius necessarily to uh, uh, account for this. If we think about, say, for instance, one of the most divisive political issues of the 19th and early 20th century that is with us today, it's immigration. Right? We fought about immigrant versus native then. We fight about immigrant versus native now. Um, but one of the key elements in the 1930s is that scapegoat of American politics did not really exist because immigration had been closed off by World War I and then the 1924 immigration attack that uh, closed off immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. So right then and there, we really don't have that divisive element that has plagued America really since uh, Catholics began to, even Germans actually, began to land in the United States. And then the other thing that happens is, is 
uh, one of the key questions, of course, throughout American history is race and what will we do about that? Well, they compromised by getting, by not including African American occupations in the New Deal. So service work and agricultural work were excluded from the New Deal in order to keep the Southern white, Southern segregationist uh, congressional delegation on board. This is something Eric Katz-Nelson develops brilliantly in his book, Fear Itself. So right then, so you've neutralized race and you've neutralized immigration. Two big divisive issues in American politics. You mentioned individualism. This is an era, if there was ever an era in American history where individualism was at bay, it was in the 1930s. You know, we see it culturally and everything from Busby Berkeley musicals to, you know, jazz and a whole host of things in which, uh, you know, Frank Capra movie, where the community plays a much bigger role in people's lives. And I think World War II really consolidated that in an important way that we're all in this together. But wasn't there also another element here that freedom or liberty was being redefined? Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, this is a, you know, a, a classic political philosophy question. There's sort of two branches of liberty. Liberty from, that is, freedom from your incursion on my rights. But then there's also another version, and this is what Roosevelt tried to do. And this is the, the, the sort of genius move on his part was to redefine liberty as the freedom to do. What material backing do you need? What kind of, what kind of income and job and, and, and security do you need to have the freedom to do something, a positive freedom rather than a negative freedom? And this was, um, was a, a really important part of almost all of FDR's uh, uh, major speeches in the 1930s. It seems to me that that point right there uh – is the thing that conservatives really went after, this redefinition of freedom or liberty, uh, you know, that yeah. that said, you know, we uh, the, the state is going to level the playing field for everyone so that everyone has an equal opportunity. This was probably the thing that, that conservatives have attacked forever since then. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and that's what I, I tried to talk about is, is that this is a delicate balance, but even while this is a massive breakthrough, the New Deal is a massive breakthrough, it's still, it's still um, chained to the past in important ways, um, chained to a lot of the conservative impulses in American political culture. And, and it never fully breaks through, and that's why it, it ends up being, being, still being vulnerable. Well, I, I, I use the term the fragile juggernaut. It's both a juggernaut, but it also has these internal fractures that could break at any moment. Now let's talk about what the what the New Deal actually did for labor. A lot. It did a lot for labor. And let's talk about the Wagner Act. And let's talk about during this kind of golden age of labor, we could call it, uh, that when, goes from the New Deal in the 30s to probably maybe the mid 60s. Uh, what was that? Tell, what was what was happening with labor? It, it never had seen the kind of power that it had at that time. That's exactly right. Um, so, it had, 
labor law in America had been extremely restrictive and or non-existent prior to the New Deal. So if, if you organize a union prior to the Wagner Act, the chances are that you, especially if you're unskilled, that the employer would take you to court, the court would put an injunction on the strike, you'd break the injunction, and then the troops would be sent in and your strike would be smashed. Under the National Labor Relations Act, or the Wagner Act, as we call it after Senator Robert Wagner, uh, basically, not only is, are unions legalized, but there's also a set of rules for how they will uh, function and a board to oversee that function. So it's really quite an elaborate field. But it's also important to remember that, you know, somebody like Roosevelt wasn't a huge fan of labor. What they finally realized was they needed to get money in the hands of regular people somehow in order to keep the economic pump prime. And what better way to do it than just have this national redistributive mechanism that labor provides? It doesn't cost the government much, and it takes money from the top and puts it in the hands of, of working people. And that will help stimulate consumption, which is what they finally realized was the problem. It was underconsumption. So this was a big thing. And then, and then still, uh, so you have the rise of the sit-down strikes, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, a massive breakthrough in all the core industries, steel, auto, glass, electrical, you, know, you name it. Um, and organized labor goes from, you know, a little bit more than it is now to about 35% of um, work, non-agricultural workers in the United States, which is a lot. And this was sort of catalyzed by the war because you already had this uh, high-level organization. And the war boom comes along and all those workers flow into new jobs and into the unions that already have those jobs. So... By the time the post-war moment comes along, those unions and the, those laws are working really well, redistributing wealth, and creating what we call the quote-unquote middle class in America, which is really a well-paid, fairly affluent working class. Now, this is, so you've got a lot of, the, the, the Wagner Act allows unions and labor to uh, advocate for higher wages, for benefits, uh, vacation time, all kinds of things that we've now considered sort of the American dream. Uh, Regular work hours, uh, pensions. It was quite impressive. What happened? (laughs) Because now, you know, basically pensions are going the way of the dinosaur. Very few people now have pensions. Uh, you know, good paying industrial jobs are gone. Now you could blame, uh, you know, globalization. Uh, all, there's all kinds of reasons that people blame for why these jobs are gone. And the labor unions, the old labor unions are not, don't seem to have a play anywhere. Right. Yeah. I, I, I show a cartoon in my class and it shows a public sector worker protesting and, and the public sector worker says, Defend our pensions. And then the private sector workers saying, what's a pension? <laughs> um, so, well, that just brings me, yeah. to, this brings me to something else. The, the New Deal also created a mass uh, bureaucratic system. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yeah, the growth of government. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was which was also very you know completely unprecedented in American history. Um, not not wholly unprecedented. I mean, during wartime we've had large governments, and 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 during the Gilded Age we had you know the beginnings of that. But but this is the first time that the government mechanisms are actually focused on uh, not just on business because it was it was on business, but also on the needs of, of working people. And yeah, as you say, well. Uh, the unions could bargain for just about anything they wanted. You can put whatever you wanted on the table. And uh, you can get it contractually, whether it's vacation time or shorter hours or bargaining over the use of technology. What happened to that power, what I, what, what I, I use the term from, that J.K. Galbraith used, which is countervailing power, that you actually had, in a pluralist society, you had a group that, Played a very important countervailing power to the to the power of business. Right now, there is no countervailing power. There is no. There's nothing on the other side of the scale, right? We can yell and scream at this, but but labor union went in. Labor unions went in and bargained for that, and there's no bargaining mechanism anymore. Well, basically, if you've got organized capital, uh, the only countervailing power you either have to have a state or you have to have uh, organized labor. Uh, right. We have a state. It's not doing anything for labor. It's doing things for. Capital, I would argue. Okay, now you say that even though we, we had this great period of uh, working class uh, prosperity, that there were there were already it was already embedded in this New Deal in the prosperity. There were already fissures, things that were going to really break down the New Deal. The New Deal was not going to be able to be maintained because of some uh, things in American political culture that were going to come back. And even I think worse than they were before. Um, <laughs> let's talk about. Well, we, we're getting into the '60s now. We're getting into to you know Johnson and the Great Society and some of those issues. So tell me, right? What what were the things that were still there that people weren't really paying attention to, but kind of came back and bit us on the butt? You know. Well, that's, that's right. It, 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 I'm I'm actually a big advocate of immigration to the United States, but it has its political cost. So in 1965, which passed the, the Immigration Reform Act, which, which opened up immigration again, and everybody thought, well, that's fine. It isn't going to have a big impact. But, of course, if you go to a Trump rally today, you will know that immigration has fundamentally transformed politics. The, uh, the African-American freedom struggle in the South uh, and then in the North uh, burst back open this thing which the Democratic Party tried to keep under wraps. And when that did that, and, and the Democratic Party could decide in civil rights, it lost the what was once called the Solid South uh, to the Republican Party. And, um, and that Faustian pact they made back in the 30s to kind of ignore black workers uh, did come back and beat Biden in the behind, just as, as you said. And and completely upended the um, political coalition, and even things like you know the culture wars reemerged very strongly, mostly after the '60s, after all these cultural freedoms are are um, are demanded, and then in the '70s, once uh, you know things like you know abortion and prayer and schools and uh, these questions of cultural value, uh, sexuality. Uh, race relations, all of this uh, shifts questions from economics to culture. And the churches now become politicized. 
And even the left begins to get behind individual rights rather than collective economic rights. And I think as a result, it's a decline in the whole idea of collective economic rights. Now, let's talk about, I want to go back to Johnson's Great Society, because a lot of people think of the Great Society as just a continuation of the New Deal. Mm-hmm. But you you uh, are saying that actually it was a very individualistic vision. Yeah, I, I, I want to have that one both ways <laughs> um, in the following sense. It is a continuation of the New Deal in that Johnson saw himself as a New Dealer. Uh, a lot of these guys saw themselves working with the heritage of the New Deal. They believed in the New Deal. But here we are in 1964 in one of the most, one of the strongest economies in world history. Uh, collective bargaining is working great. We're going great guns. Everything's lovely. Oh, but there's some people left out. What do we do for those people? Well, let's, let's help them reform themselves individually so they can participate in this great economy. And part of the logic at that moment was the office is going to go on forever. Nobody predicted the 70s and 80s, right? And and so things things are good, but we really need to get everybody left out on board. And those people are left out probably because of education issues or because of um, uh, personal problems, drugs, alcohol, whatever, uh, training issues, a whole host of things. And if we can deal with those, then we'll have full labor force participation. Well, um, that was great as far as it goes, but that only works if you're trying to perfect what appears to be a great economy. By 1973-74, we know the economy itself is, going to, is falling apart. Now, you, so, but, so the reason the New Deal begins to deteriorate is no, is because of the the industrialization globalization well, or is it because uh group rights or individual rights become the focus of government or the courts rather than you know group rights or social uh democracy is that what you're saying? My answer is, my, my answer is yes. Okay. Uh, in, the, in the following sense, that um, all of those things mattered. Yet if all of those things mattered, then this is just too complicated. There's something else going on. If it's that fragile that it can die a death of a thousand cuts, then uh, something else is going on. Yes, the, the political discourse and the legal discourse shifted to individual rights. Yes, factories closed down. Yes, globalization and technology had an effect. But for my money, the real question is, why was there not a better collective economic response in the 1970s? I deal with that in my book, Staying Alive, much more deeply. But the argument I make in this book is that, you know, we shift our attention to, we sort of go back to the status quo ante, in which we're fighting about immigration and culture and individualism the role of states and race and all of these things that pull apart what appeared to be a permanent economic and political revolution called the New Deal, pulled it apart and ultimately um, destroyed it, I think. And not completely. I mean, I think there's a lot to defend. Social Security, Fair Labor Standards Act, things like that are still very important. 
and Obamacare is an important victory, but but it is nothing compared. All of that is nothing compared to the redistributive function that a lot of this stuff once once had. You also uh, suggest that the Reagan Revolution be called the Reagan Restoration. <laughs> Why but, is that? Um, because uh, you know, I I I think it's the return to the Gilded Age. You know, we often refer to this time as the Gilded Age in a sort of mocking way uh, because we have our robber barons and our and, and uh, you know an impoverished working class and things like this. But I actually think it does. It rhymes with the, the previous Gilded Age in very important ways, mostly around the way political coalitions form and and and, and fail to form. So Reagan is, in a lot of ways, I think a lot less mysterious or magical than people tend to see him. Um, rather than a revolutionary transformation, I think you're basically seeing a return to uh, the, the New Deal uh, status quo ante. And um, so I think for that reason, we have to regard to liberal achievements as all the more impressive and conservative achievements uh, a little more predictable. Now, one of the critiques that I read recently about why we cannot call our current era the Gilded Age is because during the Gilded Age, there was a, uh, a lot of labor uh, activism and pressure. Mm-hmm. And even though labor was fragmented like we discussed, there was still a lot of activity and that we have much – we don't have a labor movement today that we that's really viable. Would you agree with that? Right, yes. So there's no countervailing. Well, I mean, there was some countervailing pressure, even though there wasn't any government intervention. So now we just have gilded people yeah. <laughs> with uh, <laughs> power and money, uh, but we don't yeah, have right. a corresponding, uh, you know, uprisings on the ground. We don't have people, you know, going out and, you know, at factory or even McDonald's. I mean, there's some of that, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a gilded age with that. Eugene or the Knights of Labor or, or Elizabeth Leake or the Populists or whatever you might have. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, if you're quoting Steve Fraser, I have critiques of, of that book. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it, it is different. Uh, there are many less challenges to capitalism itself um, right now than there were uh, 110 years ago. There's no doubt about that. I mean, to be in the streets of Chicago at the turn of the last century was to hear, you know, socialists and anarchists and a big stew of people who are trying to change the system in fundamental ways. We definitely don't see that anymore. But there is a lot of ferment going on. There's the 15-hour minimum wage. There's, the, uh, there's justice for janitors. There's uh, Occupy Wall Street. There's um, uh, the... Um, uh, fight for, for uh, taxation and regulation and things like this. And so, you know, there's Bernie Sanders. Um, but what we see is, um, it, again, it's sort of more fragmented, looser, less cohesive, less like the New Deal block that we saw, all focused on the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and so, for instance, right now, you might... It, Imagine, if you want to really understand this, think about Franklin Roosevelt uniting everybody voting for Bernie Sanders and everybody voting for Donald Trump. Right? That's what happened in the New Deal. That the, the, the cultural critique 
that you see in the Trump campaign against immigrants and women and minorities and, you know, whatever, was muted and people all folded into an economic problem. Yeah, so there was some more, there was more political cohesion than we have yeah. today. I mean, because even, yeah. even today, I mean, yeah. you've got the Republican Party, it's split into so many different factions. Uh, right. There's not as much cohesions within the parties. Uh, or across parties. Um, so one of the things that I noticed about, you know, the Reagan uh, era, in the eight, which I think is the 80s and the 90s, <laughs> goes further, um, is the idea that, you know, it's the individual, and if you are not doing well in, a, in our econ- economic system, it's because you have failed in some way. You have not, you know, gotten your education, you have not tried hard enough, you're not creative enough, you're not, uh, you don't have enough initiative, and and people have, I think that's one of the reasons why the labor movement in the United States is so weak, even today, is because we some people have a sense that if I'm not doing well, it's my fault. I have. Yeah, this is. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I don't like the term neoliberalism because it's as confusing as it is, you know, useful. But I, I'm going to use it now just because. Shorthand. It's shorthand. It's all I got. <laughs> but I think the great victory of neoliberalism is, if I can give it agency, is exactly that, that we've internalized this sense of blame, hidden injuries, um, on our own. Like, you know, oh, yeah, it's all my fault because I'm, I'm supposed to be an entrepreneur of my own life and make it happen, and I don't need the security of, you know, wage legislation or bargaining legislation or good taxation or anything like that. I can, I've got to do it on my own, and that makes everybody very anxious, especially as the top and the bottom continue to move apart and the treadmill gets faster and faster for those at the bottom as you get exhausted. And, um, yeah, it, I think it's an absolutely horrible situation. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was to think a lot of people were saying, well, we got to get back to the New Deal, we got to get back to the New Deal, and I would be happy to do that. I'm a proponent of the New Deal. I just think that we actually have some more fundamental issues around, you know, race and immigration and individualism and class and things like this that we actually need to struggle through before we can actually get to those more important issues. One thing that you're taught, I wanted to ask you was, do you really think that the United States, with all its diversity that it has, um, can achieve any kind of political cohesion again? Because if you look at countries, you know, when people try to compare the United States with like, what can't we be more like Sweden or Japan or you know, whatever, you know, Sweden is a much smaller country. Um, and, you know, in the 20th century, for most of the 20th century, Sweden uh, was moving towards socialism or, or developed, you know, highly socialized uh, government. But uh, they're also they didn't have the diversity. They were, there was a, you know, they're all kind of like related to each other. You know, it's like one big family. (laughs) And at least look like each other. You know what I'm saying? And that makes it a lot easier to find uh, agreement because, you know, we're all kind of in it together. We all look alike. We all have the same religion. We all have the same ethnic group. But the United States is is so diverse. And it's it's even more diverse now than it was, you know, in the 50s. Um, Can we? That's my argument. That's exactly my argument, that it's, a, it's an extraordinarily diverse nation prior to the 20s. 
and it is now. But you have this slight move towards a more social homogeneity in the post-war era. And that makes us look a little bit more like Northern Europe, giving us what Richard Hofstadter called a social democratic tinge. Um, and, but it was based on that sort of sense of social homogeneity, that we had a shared identity, that, you know, we didn't in the Gilded Age, and we don't now. And, you know, right. and, and you know what warm. happened with that. You okay. know that the black, you know, the... The black uh, power movement came along and said, "Yeah, we're all supposed to be white." You know, the the the, yeah. co- the common man, and you talk about exactly. that. The common bank, the industrial worker, the 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 the, the, the citizen was was a white male, and exactly. excluded a lot of people. So it was a homogeneity that was sort of uh, imposed, rather exactly. than right. And so the question is, I don't. Can America really ever have the cohesion necessary to develop the kind of social democracy that you, you're talking about? Well, that, that's that's the big, big question. That's what I'm pointing out is in order to do that, we need to focus on these other issues. So it's sort of a because it's a double move that I'm making. One is uh, we need to focus on economic issues. We can't fight among ourselves. On the other hand, and then the next move is in order to get there, we need to resolve these issues amongst ourselves first. And can we actually be a truly multicultural society? I think that's a, you know, and only by truly embracing a multicultural society can we move towards a shared economic agenda. I think you're absolutely, you're, what you're implying is absolutely correct. It's an enormous uphill struggle. And I don't think anybody should think it's easy. I don't think you can just pull the lever for Bernie and expect it all to happen. Um, that said, I mean, I've, I've got to have some hope. <laughs> and, well, there's something that uh, you do uh, here. There's something that you do here, Jeff, that I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, the New Deal was a central government, you know, bureaucratic uh, project for social uh, economic rights. And right. it seems like you, towards the end of the book, you are sort of, in a way, kind of giving up that and saying, you know, the central government's become too bureaucratic. It is being controlled by uh, forces that are, you know, big, powerful corporate and, and government collusion. And mm-hmm. that the hope is, it seems to me that you're pointing to the hope to back to a local and state initiatives. That That's the, right. Yeah I, think, yeah, I think the model, not for policy, but for how to achieve policy, is probably looking a little bit more like the progressive era rather than the New Deal, which is to say it's not going to be one huge set of federal programs that come on, come down from on high, but it'll be much more community, state, municipal. It'll be wage regula- It'll be minimum wage regulations at the state level. It'll be state level maternity leave and paternity leave, family leave, whatever it is. And then that all that all the interesting experimentation will be local and and, and state. And I, I yeah, I actually have almost no hope of getting anything meaningful out of federal government. So I, what's what's interesting about that? I think that is probably the bright spot in your um, book. <laughs> the interpretation. Yeah, because yeah, your book is really kind of um, we've got now we've got this huge New Deal bureaucratic uh, government, but it has turned to. Against its own reasons of why it was this, it grew, 
it grew right. for e- for economic uh, reasons to level the playing field, but it has kind of turned against the people it grew for, and now it's just sort of for itself. But you have a a a real ray of hope that I was very excited about when you're talking about the the local and the state uh, activism. Because what's great about that is it allows a lot more people uh, to be involved at a local level uh, with shaping the, their own lives and what kind of communities that they want to live in. Yep. And yeah. then maybe that'll, that'll push those questions higher up the political food chain, too. You know, people will begin to respond to those on a national level. But, yeah, I, I, I do believe that. I'm glad you found that, that optimistic. It's very interesting how people read this book. Some people say it's 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 quite um, pessimistic, and others say, "Oh, really? What he's saying is, yeah, this is this is the direction to go." And I also think experimentation is the way to go. I think that sort of chasing these political ghosts of the New Deal is misguided, and it, and it, it prevents us from thinking creatively about what other ideas might be possible. Well, experimentation works a lot better when you're walk, working in a small uh, area or right. small thing. Uh, you, you can try a lot of different things and see if they work or don't work, and you get a lot more people involved. But, you know, there's criticism. There's a lot of criticism of what some people would call localism, you know, yep. that, you know, what is, what is it? Uh, think globally but act locally, you know, that mm-hmm. whole slogan that, you know, there's criticism of that. Because oh, it, because it leaves it leaves untouched um, massive you know transnational corporations that any local community really has no power really to push against. Uh, yep. I'm thinking you know if you're thinking about something like a, a Walmart, which is not even a very good example. You know, uh, is it's a huge corporation that can go and crush, literally crush, uh, the businesses of a small community, unless that community organizes itself and somehow through zoning or other efforts keeps Walmart out. Right. Yep. And uh, and 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 it's, it, that's very difficult. Or or even more to the point, how do you control investment in your communities? You you know you want to. You want a manufacturing plant, or you want to retain a manufacturing plant, or something. Uh, localism is tough, um, and that, that was the argument in my first book that it's, capital mobility is there, you know, a, a, a great lever against any kind of local sense of power. So I'm not naive about what I'm talking about here. I just think that um, the federal system, as it stands, is is so paralyzed that all we have right now is the local. And I'd like to see that pushed up to the, you know, those local initiatives eventually pushed up to the upper echelon. Um, but I think it's going to begin at the grassroots, not at the top. And so what is the cultural component of this? Because like we just, we've been saying, you're saying you can't have economic, you're not going to have economic uh, solidarity if you don't have some sort of uh a, a, agreement or something among all these diverse groups that our country is made out of. Uh, what kinds of – do you have any clues about how to uh, build these bridges for some sort of common purpose? There has to be right. – we're, yeah. we're all different living in our own little enclaves of people that are just like us. 
Yes, we are. We're watching, you know, our little, you know, specifically designed niche programming. On exactly. The internet we- and everything else. Yeah, no, it's, it's very difficult when we live in our own little echo chambers. Um, I, I, I really do. Um, and, uh, that's, you know, I used to live in Ithaca. I'm moving to Nashville. And, uh, you know, Ithaca was this little, uh, tiny city in which, you know, there was a vibrant discussion about what to do, but it was, you know, we, everybody kind of agreed more or less, uh, how we wanted the world to be in a bigger, more diverse place. That is a much more, um, complicated question. And I think, uh, um, but 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 that's where you actually see where liberalism is the strongest in cities where um, people know they have to be in contact with one another that they 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 are inter- interdependent that we all need public transportation we all need good schools we all need good health care I mean that's something that I think is not necessarily readily apparent if you're living in a more isolated uh, place where you can continue the illusion of individualism. Okay, Jeff, where do you think your book is going to be most useful? Well, you know, <laughs> really scary question. Um, I mean, my argument is with, or my argument is designed basically to stimulate new thinking among progressives and the left. Um, uh, I'm curious what conservatives will think about it, um, because if they do endorse it, that means that they're agreeing that conservative, conservatism is based on consciously fragmenting the, pol- the polity into ethnic and racial uh, uh, segments. But what I want to do is really try to push hard to open up discussion within people who are interested in questions of redistribution of wealth and power in the United States to really question some of the fundamental values and, and issues that they've depended upon. Um, the Democratic Party kind of built itself on the, around the New Deal and hasn't really come up with a strong agenda since. They've really been playing, uh, I mean, this is a great society, but since that, that, that era, since that era came to a close in the early 70s, they really haven't come up with a positive agenda. And I think uh, resting on these laurels of this one great breaker is a problem. So, in fact, what I thought was going to be more of a popular intervention of the book turns out I'm getting more back-channel discussion to think tanks and uh, policy organizations who are much more interested in this than um, uh, the sort of popular readership. It seems to me like um, some conservatives would find uh, some agreement with you on the local and state initiatives. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, mine's not an anti-statist. I know it's or, not, but so, it, but yeah. it's useful for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you could, right. But, but that's, again, you know, this is how, uh, you know, I, I think even how we think of right and left are probably problematic now. You know, I think, you know, they're, they're, conservatives want good schools and, and, you know, good health care. They may not agree in, in how to get it, but they want it. Um, so you know, we need to, if we have that discussion within our communities, we know trust is higher on a community level than it is uh, a state level, on a regional level, or on a, on a certainly a national or international level. There's sort of a series of concentric rings of identity. 
and the further you get out, the less trust there is. So, so I think that that even you know maybe we can work out some of our differences even on a local um, level more effectively. Okay, um, what have you been working uh, working on next? What is your next project? <laughs> Um, I'm working. Um, the short version is I'm working on a. The early version is I'm working on a little collection of reader on uh, the history of capitalism, on defining core concepts in the history of capitalism. Um, and then I'm going to do a little community study. I think of a small town in the south from that goes from Indian removal all the way to the civil rights period, and looking at how race works in this uh, community level. I'm kind of interested in the idea of what, how, of white freedom. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>